This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hello and welcome to the Polar Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Eric Paglia here in Stockholm, Sweden. And here on episode 18, we're going to be discussing the future of the Antarctic Treaty system and the challenges faced by Australia with great power politics on the rise in Antarctica, where Australia is the largest claimant state with a claim of 42% of the territory there. Of course, these claims are frozen under the Antarctic Treaty. And to discuss this uh, this matter, we have on the phone line all the way from Canberra, Australia, Dr. Elizabeth Buchanan, research fellow at the Australian National University. Center for European Studies and a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute of West Point. She's an expert on polar geopolitics with a specialization in Russian foreign policy. So uh, Elizabeth Buchanan, uh, very welcome to the Polar Geopolitics Podcast. Great to have you on the line. Thank you for having me. So let me get to the first question, Elizabeth. There's been quite a bit of hand-wringing lately among uh, polar experts over the future of the Antarctic Treaty System after 2048. But based on some articles you've recently written, you seem to have serious concern over the sustainability of the ATS, even in the short and medium term, let alone uh, three decades from now. So can you please explain why you think the treaty is at risk of collapse? Thanks, Eric. Well, the first and crucial thing to do is to point out a really an important correction to this whole 2048 narrative in general. So 2048 refers to the Madrid Protocol, which is the environmental agreement within the Antarctic Treaty System, which in the year 2048 will be able to become open for review. So there is a review mechanism within that treaty that can be operational. It's a difficult thing though. We've got a two-step process. So we need three quarters of all of the original 1991 dignitaries to agree that the protocol needs to be revised. And then the second step is 100% of all of the consultative parties who are present at the meeting need to agree that this protocol can be amended, changed, or removed. So it's going to be a difficult task, probably somewhat impossible. So in 2048, the protocol itself will not be ending and it will not be lapsing. The Antarctic Treaty System does not just end on that date. So that's a really first critical point I wanted to make. The second point I think that's worth making when we're talking about the magical 2048 year is that in general, it's not a new argument that we need a longer term solution to the ATS. So first of all, and what much of my research argues and covers, first of all, it was never meant to be the forever solution. And if you look to the treaty wording itself, it freezes these territorial questions, quote, till a later stage. Second, it is not uncommon for international legal structures to be tested in this manner, particularly given geopolitical realities. And thirdly, and this is what my research has highlighted, the ATS itself is a weak legal structure, vulnerable to external pressures, and I argue we're not able to respond to these pressures. So that, in a nutshell, is the argument myself and other scholars have regarding the long-term suitability of the ATS to govern the Antarctic. So weak legal structure, that's what makes it unstable, vulnerable? Yes, I think we're on the way towards ATS irrelevance. And indeed, my research has shown that states have a unique way of reading legal terminology in treaties, and we know this all over the world. With the increase of new technology and these technologies that are being used in a dual fashion, so we have scientific applications, but we also have military application potential as well. 
Yeah, I mean, you mentioned in your in one of your articles a series of ambiguities within the treaty that are being, uh, and maybe that's what you're pointing towards, this idea of a weak legal structure, that there's there's a lot of ambiguities in there that can be exploited by certain states that have uh, maybe not the best interest of the treaty itself in mind. Exactly. So we know that the ATS makes the Antarctic unavailable for any military, sort of the military theater, it's unavailable. But you can have military personnel assisting scientific endeavors to see how it can be easily exploited. So the second part of your question was pointing towards, well, what happens if this tree does crumble? And I guess our best solution, our best outcome without an ATS in place is that the Russians and the US split this unclaimed sliver of the Antarctic amongst themselves, 50-50, and the existing territorial claims that were set in place when the treaty was signed back in 61 are then activated and accepted. Countries like China pack up all of the research, all of their investments, and simply go home. So we know this is unlikely. What we think is likely is that military might will determine who owns the continent. And the problem for Australia is we are not placed in a position to defend 42% of Antarctica. These are huge issues that deserve a little more discussion here on the podcast. Really fascinating stuff. So uh, you talk about military might. Are some of these parties, some of these claimants and also non-claimants thinking along those lines of having to militarily defend Antarctica? It almost sounds like a science fiction uh, scenario. Or is this just a hypothetical that we're discussing here? Well, it is an episode or two of the X-Files, I'm sure. No, I think it is a stark reality, as I've pointed to before, the dual use of most of the technology and the infrastructure down there at the moment. We know that countries like China, like Russia, are increasingly active. They have Antarctic budgets that triple countries like Australia uh, and the US have. So there's the funding. Secondly, operationally, we know they're active. That's something to look for. We can also boil down national security strategies from these countries. And we see that this region, the Antarctic, features significantly. You think the stakes are that high that mentioned China and Russia, United States, uh, Australia being the largest claimant state, 42% of the territory. Is this uh, to the extent that it's the national interest that they would actually allocate resources to defend this and and have a world war on Antarctica? It seems like an amazing scenario, but uh, you're you're saying that uh, there's indications that that is a potential outcome. Absolutely. And so Australia, as you pointed out before, has the largest claims, 42%. So the reality is that Australia, Canberra, needs the Antarctic Treaty more than it needs us. It's actually the only method that we have to keep our claim because there's no way that we have the military power, the planning, the personnel to do so without having this theoretically upper hand that the Antarctic Treaty awards us. So it's in our best interest that it stays put. I think this is why we're currently turning a bit of a blind eye to what Beijing is doing in our own Antarctic territory, the AAT, Australian Antarctic Territory. But Australian interests are obviously well beyond the claims of the 42%. In the archival work I've done recently, going back into our government discussions in the late 50s and the early 60s in the development of the Antarctic Treaty itself, it was clear that the Australian government was extremely interested in the hydrocarbons and the minerals, particularly mining, that the Antarctic possesses. And a second, which is quite interesting for me as a Russian specialist, the second factor driving Australian interest in developing the Antarctic Treaty was simply making sure the Soviet Union would not remain in the Antarctic post the polar year. So keeping, I guess, the Soviets out of our backyard. 
So if the Antarctic treaty system is obviously of more use to us to have it there because it's the only way we could have such a claim. So in terms of where Antarctica sits in the heart and minds of Australians, unfortunately we have a very relaxed attitude towards the continent. So the assumption in the general public is that Australia is an Antarctic power We have accepted sovereignty over the larger sliver of the continent and we know that this is not true. So the government hasn't done a great job in educating the general public as to how volatile the situation could really be should the treaty system erode in any way. There are debates at the moment in Canberra as to which department, which government department is owning the Antarctic set of issues. So most other Antarctic powers have a defence portfolio which oversees activity in the region. Australia is different. We actually placed all of our Antarctic work in the Department of Environment. So we have no defence oversight, which I think in the long term is going to prove to be detrimental. I mean, that's part of the spirit of the of the ATS, right? Is it's supposed to be a place for environmental preservation and, and scientific research. So if Australia had not put it in the in the environment portfolio, if it was just sort of smack dab right there in the defense portfolio, that would probably raise eyebrows around the world, wouldn't it? It would. But if you look at what other countries are doing, the majority of them have their Antarctic division within as a subset of their Department of Defense. So the US, which has their major Antarctic base, outsourced in terms of the running data activities to a major US defence contractor. Another example of countries placing Antarctic affairs in defence portfolios is if you go through the record, which are publicly available, of inspection parties, you can see the members of each of the inspection teams. And more often than not, these are representatives of defence, foreign affairs, security arms of governments. Whereas Australia, when we've sent in inspection parties, which is part of the Antarctic Treaty, where all countries are able to do so and should be allowed to do so unhindered, we send in representatives of our environmental portfolio. Uh, We send in lawyers, even. We're not sending in strategic minds or our defence representatives to really focus on what countries are doing in our own Antarctic territory. You've talked about the uh, potential for collapse uh, of the entire Antarctic uh, tree system in the in the near term, in the next, I don't know if you're, you're referring to the next two to five years or something. What would trigger this downward spiral? Is it just incompatible interests between the great powers in Antarctica? Is there perhaps, I mean, you mentioned that Australia has a lot of, a lot riding on the, on the uh, sustainability of the ATS, that it's actually sort of the core of its Antarctic foreign policy is to preserve the treaty. Are there other countries that actually would welcome the collapse of the ATS in your view? Short-term, long-term, in terms of thinking with the collapse of the Antarctic Treaty, I don't think it's helpful. I think we need to be having a discussion about next steps. We need to agree that the treaty was not meant to be, it was not ever a complete solution, and it called for policymakers of today to deal with the sovereignty question. And I think until the sovereignty question is dealt with, there is always going to be this simmering potential for conflict in the region. So now, as I've outlined with the Australian over-reliance on having the treaty in place to protect the large 42% stake, I think we'll continue to have our head in the clouds and accept slight violations. We know that countries like Russia and China are mapping the seabeds around the Antarctic shelf for minerals. 
and the Antarctic Treaty. Again, we go back to here about the flexibility of legal jargon. If they can argue that they're doing it for scientific purposes, then it is permissible and it's hard to argue otherwise. You're saying that the weakness of the Antarctic Treaty system itself is perhaps a risk to further instability, perhaps conflict because of these ambiguities. So what you're perhaps suggesting is that instead of planning for the demise of the treaty, they actually perhaps work on shoring up some of these ambiguities and make it less possible that countries exploit these and which would then lead to a reduced likelihood of conflict. Is that a, is that a fair assessment of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. It's about repurposing a treaty system for the realities of today that the policymakers in the 50s couldn't have imagined are the kind of security challenges that we have. A further point is the treaty itself is not fit for purpose. If you look at the avenues that it has within it to revise or to amend, they only ever foresaw that countries would be revising or amending the treaty based on consensus, right? That's what the whole treaty system is about, consensus. They didn't bake into the treaty system the potential for an off-road that is not through consensus. How do you deal with a state like China, like Russia, perhaps the US, that simply says, okay, we opt out of the Antarctic Treaty System. There's nothing in the system itself that accounts for what the next steps are when that happens. And that there, I think, is, I guess, the lack of foresight that the treaty presents, and that's ripe for exploitation. Okay, so then it's perhaps, uh, as you mentioned, the time to update the treaty and not uh, just uh, plan for its imminent demise. I think that's a very important point. So, Elizabeth, as um, we uh, were alluded to earlier, there's this one particular case that highlights a lot of these issues we're talking about here, and that's the uh, case of Dome A and China's Kunlun Station, which is located there, the highest elevation in all of Antarctica, and it's considered very uh, geostrategic uh, for that reason. And China wants to create an Antarctic specially managed area around Kunlun Station at Dome A. Can you perhaps explain why this is controversial and how this affects Australia's interest in Antarctica? Lucky for Australia, Dome A, which has caused all the uproar, Dome A is located in the Australian Antarctic Territory. It is the highest point in the Antarctic ice shelf, and we know already that the Antarctic is the best place for space in terms of the clearest point for view. So we know that the highest point in the clearest part of the world is going to be the best vantage point for any country to control. A specially managed area can be made when we have one or more country conducting scientific research in the same area. So it's done to avoid any potential tension and spillover of experiments. So right now, the case that China has made for developing Dome A as a specially managed area has been rejected because only China is active in terms of a research agenda in that particular area. That's where we stand. Beijing, of course, is responding. This is a political block and there are plenty of other specially managed areas throughout the continent, which there are. And so therefore, it's just because Beijing has put an application in, the other powers have simply blocked their application. But the controversy stems really from China's code of conduct that they submitted with the Dome A application. What's interesting in this code, it's more or less a rule book of how they plan to manage this area. Within the rule book, they've got delineated areas and zones of no access, including areas in which 
countries have no ability to fly over and well really the majority of the area will require permission from Beijing to enter. So this is worrisome for the overall consensus free access agenda of the Antarctic. They're essentially looking to develop an annexed area for which Chinese researchers, Chinese nationals control, work, research, operate in within the Australian Antarctic region. So China sees itself as following the, uh, the rules of the ATS, but being blocked for geopolitical reasons by other states to act. Is that basically how it's playing out right now? For face value, it looks like the other states have blocked the proposal because it was China making the proposal. But if we peel back a few layers and look at all of the materials that were submitted, we can see there are a few alarm bells as to the plans, what Beijing has for the region, which will essentially make it a region that other powers are no longer able to access without permission. And that flies in the face of what the Antarctic Treaty System is all about. It just so happens that they want to create this sort of mini Beijing territory in the most strategic point of the continent. So is this a case of uh, one country uh, looking at the letter of the law in Antarctica versus other countries looking at the, the sort of the spirit of the treaty system itself? Or is this all just geopolitics that are playing out right here in this one particular location? I think it's all geopolitics, isn't everything? Well, that's what this podcast is. All, <laughs> it's kind of what this podcast is all about, right? <laughs> so, yeah, maybe perhaps uh, perhaps you're uh, you're right about that. Where will this go from here? Where do things stand in terms of this specially managed area? Is it been just rejected, or is it going to be sort of revisited? It will be continued to find rejection until they can prove there is a case for developing a specially managed area. And as I outlined before, they need to prove that their own research is at risk from overcrowding, but there's no other countries in that particular part of the domain region that are conducting research at the moment. So I've proposed to our government, Australia submits its own domain application because we now know we've got China conducting research there so we can prove there is an overlapping, I guess there's a crowding of research in the region and Australia can make use of Dome A for our own satellite programs. That obviously will rustle through feathers in Beijing. So perhaps a softer, softer way to go would be suggesting to Beijing we have a co-managed special area. And if that's a proposal accepted by Beijing, then I think that proves they were being legitimate about the plans for the region in terms of there was a scientific basis for wanting to make it a specially managed area. But if they reject the co-management arrangement, then I think that that sends a few signals that this high point on the ice sheet was all about Beijing's interests and not this consensus-driven environmental agenda that the ATS is meant to represent. With the Antarctic, we have the potential right now, I think, to start writing new rules. And if we don't do it soon enough, if we keep assuming that states like China and Russia are simply conducting research activities that are for environment or for science and not for any other applications, then I think we're going to find ourselves with a reawakening when they turn geostrategic to have military applications. I think we all need to seriously start questioning if a consensus arrangement is viable for any longer, especially if we're looking at Russian and Chinese interests in the region and looking ahead to where these interests might head. In terms of the Antarctic, we know Russia sees it as a key component of its global polar identity, 
For China, we also have the global polar identity interest. China's quite good at diversification of resources in both the Arctic and the Antarctic. It is a welcome player in the Antarctic, and that's something we really, I think, need to do better at communicating to the general public. It's not an outsider when it comes to the Antarctic. It's more of an outsider when it comes to the Arctic. It is obviously signatory to the ATS. It has an active science agenda, strong physical presence there in terms of vessels, outposts, in terms of its engagement in the consultative meetings and the funding of research. In the Arctic, obviously a different story. Russia's only really accepted China into the fold. They're now observer to the Arctic Council, but they have no voting rights. Post the 2014 sanctions, which hit Russia's energy sector in the Arctic quite hard, they needed the finance, they needed the technology. China obviously has an interest in the opening trade routes and the resources, so it's a marriage of convenience there. So yes, there are elements of grand polar strategy for both Russia and China at play in the Arctic and the Antarctic. And I think it's really important to recognize there's a divergence between the Russia and China polar relationship itself. So in the Arctic, they're partners, but in the Antarctic, they're competitors. And I think both view each other as an emerging threat when it comes to the Antarctic a lot of what you're saying here, it seems like you come from a, a very realist perspective. We've had a guest that they see things much more from a liberal internationalist perspective. Do you see these as being incompatible or do you see sort of elements of both of these international relations uh, lenses at play in the polar regions? Are these regions of zero-sum games or is there room for both perspectives and they act or they, they exist right. in parallel? Yeah, so if we're dealing with any region in the world in which great powers, climate change, resource and energy insecurity, we can't not be talking about real politics, right? And this is why it's an important discussion we need to start having about the viability of the ATS as the management mechanism for an entire continent. We can't continue to sit and wait while countries like China, like Russia, bolster their presence in the Antarctic and act surprised if the treaty crumbles or a state simply opts out and claims the region because what will ensue is obviously mass panic. There will be confusion in the Australian population for sure because we think we have 42% as an accepted sovereignty claim, which we don't. So I think we need to follow the lead of the policymakers of the 1950s and agree that it is now a later stage and high time to face the question of sovereignty head on. I'm happy to sit and watch the ATS for the next 60 years, but I'm yet to be convinced that the continent will endure a system created in the 1950s when concepts of cyber war, space war and arms agreements getting torn up weren't considered and when the only off-ramp from the treaty system were review mechanisms. The way I interpret what you're saying, Elizabeth, is that you're saying that we should approach this from a realistic perspective or realism perspective uh, in order to uh, maintain an institution of liberal internationalism, which is the ATS. Is that an accurate assessment? Yes, it is. The key players in the Antarctic game are certainly approaching it with a realist zero-sum mentality. So I think it's high time we do as well. 
Okay, well, Dr. Elizabeth Buchanan, thanks very much for joining us here on the Polar Geopolitics Podcast. It's been a fascinating discussion. You have some very provocative opinions and outlooks on the Antarctic and the Arctic as well, and uh, certainly uh, worth discussing and taking very seriously. And as you mentioned, you've been advising the Australian government, so obviously uh, what you have to say is uh, being heard by some players that could actually have a role in shaping the future of Antarctica. So thanks very much for joining us here on Polar Geopolitics, Episode 18. You can subscribe to the Polar Geopolitics Podcast on most major platforms, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Acast. Check out our website, polargeopolitics.com. Get in touch by email, polargeopolitics.podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. Music by Mark Vandenbosch. Voiceover, Keith Foster. Logo design by Daniel Brockman. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks for listening to Polar Geopolitics.